Okay. Let's just uh, bow our hearts as we come to this time of study together, shall we? Father, we just ask for your grace, your just your wisdom as we look at these things this morning. And Lord, open our understanding. And uh, Father, stir our hearts. Lord, your word is truly incredible. Um, Father, help us to just fall in love with every page in your book. Um, Lord, on every page we see Jesus. And Lord, just give us a greater love for him. Uh, for all that he's done for us, Lord, that he's doing for us, Lord, that he's gone to prepare for us, Lord, ahead of time. We just thank you um, for the blessings that we know in you. Um, we just ask for your blessing now upon this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're coming towards an end of this uh, series. This week and next week, uh, we're going to conclude. Uh, and we've been looking at this this topic, the greatest mystery, um, just an incredible um series for me. I've really enjoyed going through. I hope you've been blessed as we've gone through these things. That first session, just to remind you, we looked at 20 or so compelling arguments from science and history uh, that I really think prove God's existence. Certainly to anybody that's prepared to to look with an unbiased, uh, just a rational, logical approach, uh, you know, they, these things prove the supernatural origin of the Bible. In the second session, we looked at um, the mystery of Israel, how this people that God has chosen some 4,000 years ago, have been preserved, and how every detail of their history was told in advance. I mean, there is no other people group on earth like this. And it kind of explains why we see so much anti-Semitism, why there's so much hatred of Israel, and so on, when you realize that God has chosen his people to reveal himself to the world, but also to use them almost as his timepiece to show where we are in God's plan of, of these things we've been going through. Um, last Two weeks ago, we were looking at um, the, the mystery of the Jubilee. We started to look how everything is working to this predetermined timetable that God has. Uh, and then last week, again, carrying on with that same theme, how this mystery has shaped world events through history. And this really is quite staggering. Uh, and we've said before that, you know, what we're seeing here is God working all things for his purposes. And again, this is a mystery that spans the ages, you know, we pose the question, you know, about whether these things could be possible, but we've seen already that this is a mystery that was birthed in that Middle Eastern desert, uh, in what is now Saudi Arabia, uh, over 3,000 years ago. And it's determining the events of our day. And it involves global leaders, heads of states, presidents, prime ministers, and, and so on, you know, all working to this plan that God has laid down. And many of them have no idea that they're involved in this, but God is still doing it nonetheless. You don't need faith to believe this, because what we've been looking at is just interwoven into the fabric of history. You know, anybody can go, these days we've got computers and all sorts of tools, we can just go and see that these uh, things that we've been looking at, the, the events that have happened on specific days, as foretold in Scripture, they're the, the matters of history, historical record now. So it's not something that, you know, well, I don't know whether I believe that or not. It's there. It's so obvious. And we should remind ourselves that God says of himself in Isaiah 46 that he is God, there is no other. He says, I'm God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And this is one of the proofs that God gives us, that he can tell the future before it happens. And he says, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. God is going to do what he wants to do, regardless of what man thinks about that. So we're going to carry on this morning looking at these mysteries 
And I just want to just give you this kind of recap just so we uh, get a running start to this. Um, Leviticus 25 is where we find the law of Jubilee. And it's law that states that the land must be transferred back to the original owner. In the 50th year, the land reverts to the original owner. Everyone must return to their own possession, which means that those inhabiting the land at that point, at the time of the Jubilee, have got to relinquish it. That which has been lost, will be fouled, the land must be restored again to the original owner of it. And again, the original connection between the owner and the land is also renewed. And we see lovely pictures of this in Scripture, and particularly in the book of Ruth. Uh, it's a great example of uh, that kind of connection with the land and the owner uh, being restored and God working in these kind of ways. In Leviticus twenty-five, twenty-three. God makes a point, he says, the land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. You know, we sometimes make the mistake of thinking the land of Israel is Israel. It's not, it's God's land. And this is why it's so significant. And he says, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. God has entrusted them with this land. But God says that land shouldn't be sold. You know, whatever happens, if it's loaned to somebody for a while, ultimately it's going to come back to Israel because Israel are the ones whom God has given this land to. And of course, it's such a contentious issue in today's world, but historically, and we've seen going through this, that God has worked in supernatural ways to ensure that Israel are now back in their land. We said, and we've seen, of course, from history, that Israel were forced out of their land in AD 70. Of course, the Romans uh, got rid of them. Uh, the final remnant of, uh, of uh, Jewish um, influence in the land was really dealt with by the Emperor Hadrian in AD 132 to 135 when, again, every trace of Israel was uh, removed. The land renamed Palestina after Israel's enemies. You know, And then many years came and went in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28. God had already prophesied uh, through Moses that all of this was going to happen as God's judgment falls upon the children of Israel for their disobedience and failure to keep the laws that he'd given well, we got up to the year 1517, and we saw that that was the last transference of the land from the Mamluks who had had it up to that point to the Ottoman Turks under Salem I. So this was that last kind of exchange of the land as the land changed ownership. Interestingly, Leviticus 26 states four times that if Israel don't obey God after he brings judgment upon them, that he'll multiply their punishment seven times. Now, there's some interesting ways that plays out in Scripture, but this clearly is one of them as well. That's just looking at the, the area, we're talking about the area of the Ottoman Empire as it was from 1517 through to 1917, uh, this region uh, of, uh, kind of the Middle East, North Africa, and uh, Europe and so on. Of course, if you go seven lots of 50 years, you get 350 years. Seven being the number in the Bible for complete. And if you go 350 years from 1517, it brings us up to 1867. So we have this this period of time that, that rather than just after 50 years the land going back to Israel... The Lord allows it to stay under the the rule of the Ottoman Turks for this period of time, for 350 years. And it brings us up to 1867, and we've seen these incredible things take place. Firstly, it was in the spring of that year that Mark Twain set sail on a voyage that brought into Israel, as Adrian said a moment ago, that he kept a diary and he logged how the land had just become this barren wilderness. There was no grass growing, no vegetation, just as Deuteronomy 29 had prophesied, that a stranger would come to the land and say these things. And it happened just 
right on cue, right on time, in the very year that it needed to. And again, as we said incredibly on Mark Twain's last day in the land, it was a Sabbath, and we said that there's this parasha, this this appointed scripture for the day that will be read, and of course it was Deuteronomy 29, the prophecy of the stranger coming to the land. Of all the scriptures the Jews could have read that day, these were appointed way, way back. Nobody really knows exactly when these scriptures were appointed. But it was that scripture on that particular day, in that particular year, as Mark Twain is actually in the land at that time. Again, the prophecy of the stranger. And again, we said the amazing thing, again, Mark Twain's real name was Samuel Clements. And since ancient times, again, we said Israel had prayed this prayer, have mercy, Lord our God, on Jerusalem, your city, and on Zion, the resting place of your glory, rebuild Jerusalem, the city of holiness, speedily in our days, bring us up into it and gladden us in its rebuilding, and let us eat from its fruit and be satisfied with its goodness and bless you upon it in holiness and purity. That's the prayer the Jews have typically been praying for some 2,000 years. Well, this stranger comes to the land, and Samuel, we know, means God hears. Clemens means merciful or the quality of showing mercy. So this stranger that comes to them was very literally a sign that God had heard their prayers and was about to show them merciful. And we said, it's very doubtful that Mark Twain had any idea that these things were being played out and the part that he was playing in these things. Two other incredible things took place at the exact same time. Firstly, General Charles Warren uncovered the ancient city of Jerusalem that had been lost Again, remember the law of the Jubilee, that which is lost has to be has to be found. And all these things started to take place. And the ancient waterway whereby Israel had first gained entrance into the city of Jerusalem under David had, was, was rediscovered by Warren. And it just, that renewed the connection with Israel and the land. And again, incredibly, Warren was in Jerusalem at exactly the same time as Mark Twain. And they even dwelt in the same place at the same time. The second miraculous event was that because of this Ottoman debt that had been incurred as a result of the Crimean War, and we looked at that in detail last week, the Ottoman Empire started selling the land, initially just to its own people, its own citizens, effectively, people from the empire. But then eventually, because that didn't cover the problem, they started selling to anybody. So Jews started buying up the land. And they started moving back. And that happened two days after Mark Twain's journey began. I mean, the timing of all these things is just breathtaking as you realize God really was working. God's redemption of the land had begun according to this law of Jubilee. And according to Moses' prophecy, what was it that was to happen after the stranger's journey? Well, if you look in Scripture, you'll see these things. I'm just going to read a quote from Jonathan Carney. He says this, The Jewish people must come back from their exile to the land. So then the land must be made ready for their return. So in accordance with ancient, the ancient ordinance, the Ottoman Empire begins to release the land. The one occupying the land must release it. The stranger's journey began on June the 8th, 1867. The Ottoman release of the land began on the 10th of June, 1867. So of all the years and days of human history, to relinqu- to the relinquishing of the land begins two days after the stranger's journey begins. This 7th Jubilee, 1867, this completion of this time that the Ottoman Empire had had it, as God now is changing things, starting to move according to his purposes. Again, another quote. The 7th Jubilee would mark the end of one era and the beginning of another. The first Jubilee of restoration, the Jubilee of seeds, of sowing, of planting. 
and of setting in motion of ancient purposes. The seeds of the seventh jubilee would begin germinating and would come to their fruition in their appointed times. Some would be revealed sooner, some later, but in time the entire world would see it. The jubilee represents the setting in motion uh, of God's purposes. It sets the stage. It inaugurates the cause. It sets in motion the train of events that must take place in the coming period, the time until the next jubilee. So then what took place in the jubilee of 1867 was set in motion a train of events, a train of prophetic purposes that, with the passage of time, will become increasingly manifest. Now, back in Zechariah chapter 2, there was this prophecy of the man with the measuring line. We said that Charles Warren seems to fulfill that that prophecy. Uh, again, he was somebody who was coming to measure Jerusalem prior to this change of ownership, laying, working out the boundaries and so on. And, and that was followed by the messenger himself being given a prophecy. In Zechariah 2 verse 4 it says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. So in the time when they come back from the Babylonian exile, there's this messenger with this um, measuring line that Zechariah sees. And after his measuring, he then is given this message to say about Jerusalem being inhabited. Well, the incredible thing here is, of course, that when Charles Warren gets back to England, not only has he gone and measured out kind of almost like a double fulfillment of that prophecy from Zechariah, but when he gets back to England, he has a vision of Israel being restored back in the land of their fathers. And he shares it publicly. It becomes known as the land of promise, this vision that he records and writes down. And within two years from that point, as we mentioned last time, and this mikvah Israel was founded. It was uh, the first school established to teach, teach Jewish people how to farm the land. It was the first time in nearly 2,000 years that Jewish people were being taught how to sow and to reap the promised land. Now, again, we touched briefly last time that Theodore Herzl, then shortly after 1894, met up with Mark Twain in Paris. They were both um, journalists, or uh, Theodore Herzl was a playwright, uh, and they subsequently kind of uh, filled, filled Herzl with this burning desire to see the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. And then this idea of Zionism was born. Of course, it's given very bad press today. But it really was just the idea that, that Israel could be back in their land, have their own place again. Well, this then leads us on to the next, the eighth jubilee. Of course, eighth in scripture means new beginnings. And that leads us on to 1917. And it truly was a, a new beginning in many ways. Between the two jubilees, the one in 1867 and the one in 1917, the Jewish people began returning to the land for two reasons. Firstly, that dream they had, and Herzl was part of that, that the hope that the children of Israel had held for some 2,000 years of being able to live in their ancient homeland again. But secondly, was the very real persecution that Jews started to face, and particularly from Russia, which was in fulfillment of prophecy. In Jeremiah 16, we read this, verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that it shall be no more said the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And let me just pause for a second. We think of Egypt, when we study Exodus and we look at those passages, and it's phenomenal, isn't it? The way the Lord brought the plagues upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and the way the Lord then led them out of Egypt and then to the, to the shores of the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea parts, and they go through it, and they come safely across the promised land, and of course the, the Egyptians then that chased after them are drowned in the Red Sea. I mean, that's just so 
incredible. And God says, you know what? There's going to come a day that you won't even talk about that. Because when I bring the children of Israel back to the land from the places they've been scattered, that's going to be even more amazing. And that's what we're talking about. That's what we're looking at now. Verse 15 goes on and says, But the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. And then look, look at this. Behold, I will send for many fishes, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. Israel literally were going to be forced back to the land. The Lord was going to allow these things, these persecutions to occur, that Israel would be forced back into the land. If they didn't want to go willingly, the Lord was going to make it such that they were going to be forced back into this place that he prepared for them, this land that he'd given them. But as a result of the people returning to the land, the land starts to come back to life as they start farming the land and so on. And what began as a kind of a trickle, if you like, became a stream and then like a river. And they planted fields and vineyards and forests. They built roads and houses, towns. A culture started establishing. And it was really the beginning of a nation. God was preparing for what was to come. And what was sown in that first jubilee of 1867 would come to fruition and increase. Now, even world leaders were starting to take notice of this. But remember, it was still only a dream. There was no natural way that any dream really could come true. The Jubilee cycle that began in 1867 would see again the first waves of Jewish exiles return to the land at the beginning of the Restoration and the founding of Zionism. But it would take another event to fulfill that mystery. That event would come just three years before the next Jubilee, and that event was the First World War. You know, we tend to think of these things as separate. We don't tend to think of them as spiritual events. But you start to realize that God is working behind the scenes, organizing and arranging everything that we've seen in history, all to fulfill his purposes. That doesn't mean that God caused the First World War, though we're not saying that. But God used these events to bring about that which he'd already foretold. Now, for those of you who have done your history, you know probably about the First World War already, but just as a recap, it was the 28th of June, 1914, that the heir to the Austrian-Hungarian throne, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was riding along in this motorcade through Sarajevo when he's assassinated by a Bosnian Serb nationalist at the time. Now, in response, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire then started preparing for war against Serbia. But Russia, very concerned about the political issues going on here, decided that they were going to mobilize for war in support of Serbia. Well, then Germany began mobilizing for war against Russia, as did the Austro-Hungarian Empire. France, in turn, entered the war on the side of Russia. And then in an attempt to defeat France, Germany invaded Belgium. Belgium, in turn, then appealed to Britain, and so Britain got involved in the war and declared war against Germany. So by August 1914, the First World War had begun. And remember, again, that the Ottoman Empire was not openly allied to any of these groups to start with, but then they made a secret treaty with Germany. And by October 29, uh, 1914, Ottoman warships, acting under the orders of the newly appointed German Admiral of the Ottoman Navy, launched a surprise attack on Russian ports in the Black Sea. That brought them fully into the war. And then on November the 2nd, Russia declared war on the Ottoman Empire, who, again, remember, still had control of the Promised Land, the Holy Land at that time. 
On November the 5th, France did the same, as did Britain. And so we have now the two empires, the British Empire and the Ottoman Empire, both drawn into this conflict on opposite sides of the war. This leads to the year of the Gezerah, or decree, is the Hebrew. There are other smaller pieces of the, the jigsaw, though, uh, that needed to play out. One of them was an individual, a Russian uh, Jew, born in 1874. He was the third of 15 children, a uh, big family. But he had a real passion for science, and as a young man, he moved to Germany to study chemistry. But he had an even deeper passion, and that was to see his people to return to their homeland. And while he was studying, he attended the Second Zionist Congress, which was organized by Theodore Herzl, we mentioned earlier. This man's name was Shane Wiseman. In 1984, he moved to Britain, and he became employed by the chemistry department of the University of Manchester. Now, these things are just utterly staggering, the way the Lord just engineers all these things. Not long after taking up the post, Wiseman's path happened, just, you know, it's like in the, the book of Ruth, that she happened upon the field, that kind of thing. She just happened to cross that with a renowned British politician and a member of parliament who at that time just happened to be representing Wiseman's constituency, the area they lived in Manchester. And that man's name was Arthur Balfour. And Balfour was a man of deep Christian faith, but his encounter with Wiseman left a real deep impression, this growing conviction of this desire to see the Jewish people return to their land. And then came the events that would lead to the First World War, as we said a moment ago, which in turn would lead to Wiseman's appointment to the British Admiralty Laboratories as an advisor to the newly established Ministry of Munitions because of his experience with chemistry and so on. The head of that department was a man by the name of David Lloyd George. Now, Lloyd George also was a Christian, he loved the Bible, and he was predisposed to this idea of the, the Jews returning to their homeland. But it was Wiseman's impact on George that would be critical to the events that then followed from that. At the time of Wiseman's appointment, British and Allied forces found themselves in the midst of a crisis over the shortage of a chemical vital for the war effort, which was acetone. Wiseman came up with a process of producing the substance in mass quantities, so kind of rose to some notoriety. And it proved a real key factor in helping the Allies attain victory. But it was another chain of events that would lead to one of the most critical moments in 2,000 years of Jewish history. In December 16, so 1916, the government of the then British Prime Minister H.H. H. Asquith collapsed. Could you imagine that? A government that collapses. Um, yeah, we live in those times today, don't we? But interestingly, the man who succeeded him was David Lloyd George. And as Foreign Secretary, Lloyd George appointed Arthur Balfour. So the two men who were in favour of a Jewish homeland were suddenly lifted to the heights of world power at this critical moment in history. I'm going to read a quote from Jonathan Carr. He said this, If Asquith's government had not collapsed just when it did, what was about to happen would never have taken place. You see, Asquith was against the idea of a Jewish homeland. And it was only in that small window of time that these things could have come about. So his government had to crumble. And had to crumble just at that moment because it was the very end of 1916. 1917 was coming. And 1917 was the year of Jubilee. 
And it just happened to be the same year that the British Empire will be placed in the position of determining the future of the land of Israel. And as the Jubilee concerns the return of one ancestral land, so world history would now turn to the Middle East and to the land of the ancient inheritance. So as the Jubilee began, members of the British government government held a, a conference concerning Palestine, or the place we refer to as Israel. By the middle of the year, Arthur Balfour had called for a draft to be made uh, for a public declaration concerning the land. And by the autumn, the British cabinet was in discussion over the form the declaration would take. But it was also determined that the plan wouldn't progress, it wouldn't go ahead unless they had the support of America. They wanted the American president's blessing on this. And on October 16th, 1917, the British government was informed that President Woodrow Wilson, at the time the president of America, was in favor of the declaration. So, on the 31st of October, this declaration was approved by the British War Cabinet. Two days later, on the 2nd of November, it went forth in the form of a letter penned by the Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour. And it became known as the Balfour Declaration. It declared this, I'm sure you're familiar. His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. It was a staggering declaration. So the Jubilee transference of land is a matter of law and it has to be recognized by the reigning authorities and this is just such a declaration. The British Empire was the reigning authority. They issued this notification. Again, this recognition would be both, both momentous and historic. It was the first declaration of any major power since ancient times and the first, certainly the first since the Roman Empire had driven the Jewish people out of their land 2,000 years earlier. In fact, the only previous declaration of this kind was made by King Cyrus, Persian king, some four and a half thousand years ago. And you can go to the British Museum and you can see the steel of Cyrus with the declaration he made to allow the Jews to return to their homeland. That's the only other occasion in history we have anything like this. Cyrus will uh, crop up again in our study uh, next week, Lord willing. Well, the Balfour Declaration then gave the Jewish people a tangible hope of a homeland. And with that hope, they came from the ends of the earth back to their ancestral possession and in greater and greater numbers. As it was decreed again in the law of the Jubilee, this ancient ordinance that each one shall return to his own possession. Amazingly, the parish or the scripture that will be read in synagogues around the world on the Sabbath of the week of the Balfour Declaration was Genesis 12. Why is that significant? Well, because it was the scripture that establishes Israel's right to land in the first place. That's where God says to Abraham, this is to be your land. It was the very first prophecy ever to speak of the return of the Jewish people also to the land. It was also recited on the last Sabbath before the declaration from Genesis 15. It says they shall return here, speaking of that return initially from Egypt, from the bondage, but it speaks of all those things that would come later as well. Well, this leads us to some other staggering interventions where God just works in a way that was just breathtaking. When the Bible speaks of Israel's borders, it uses the phrase from Dan to Beersheba. Dan being the the northernmost part 
Beersheba being the southernmost part of the land. Beersheba, of course, is the place where Abraham lost the wells, the wells that had been dug, and then he had them returned to him. This idea of losing and then regaining. And the very name comes from its loss and return. The, the idea of these seven wells, uh, Beersheba, there were seven wells at this place. Okay, it's the very essence of the Jubilee itself. And Beersheba is also the first place in the promised land to which Abraham laid claim. After the giving of God's promise, it was the well, the covenant, and the name Beersheba itself that constituted Israel's first legal right and title in the promised land. It's the first place officially that Abraham claimed, as we said. And although the British had given the Balfour Declaration, the land still belonged legally at this point to the Ottoman Turks. But the war, as we said a minute ago, brought both these empires into opposite sides. Now, in the Middle East, the British forces were stationed in Egypt. Amongst them were people like Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers was sent out there as a chaplain to serve in Egypt um, during the First World War. And it was from Egypt that the British military hoped to launch a campaign against the Ottoman Empire in Palestine. After two attempts, though, it wasn't going very well. They tried to go up by Gaza. We're all familiar, I'm sure, with the news today of where Gaza is. It's on the coast. Uh, and the British had been defeated twice. And so it looked very unlikely that they were going to be successful in trying to get into Israel and overthrow the Turks. But, of course, we've already said that this mystery of the Jubilee was already playing out. The one occupying the land must relinquish it, whether they want to or not. And the land must return to its original owner. Now, a student of the Bible who'd grown up in a Christian home, immersed in Scripture, particularly the accounts of, you know, the likes of Joshua and David and Elijah and so on, ended up, because of circumstances, serving in the British Army. It was never his intention, but he ended up serving in the British Army. He would later be known as General Edmund Allenby. Now, in the summer of 1917, Allenby was chosen to replace General Archibald Murray, who'd had these failed attempts, and Allenby is put in as commander of the British-led forces in Egypt. And he spent the remainder of the summer just strengthening the the the, the army, um, the air corps, all these kind of things, bringing in more troops and getting ready for this coming campaign. While Murray had focused on Gaza, Allenby places his focus on a very different city, Beersheba. And so it was in the autumn of that year that the British forces began heading to Beersheba with the Australian Light Horsemen and many others. It appeared to be a battle again against the others. Although they had military strength, of course the Ottomans had control of the land, they knew the geography and everything else. But all these things that we were seeing happened against the odds anyway, so we're not worried about that. And by the evening of the day they set about this, this task of launching this assault against the Ottoman Turks, the British-led forces had gained Beersheba. And the news spread very, very quickly, this watershed victory. And it really was the breakthrough event that would lead to the restoration of the Jewish people to the land. Incredibly significant. There's a map. Uh, you can see the details. In fact, this is where Beersheba is. Gaza is up here. This is where the initial attempts were made. Uh, very heavily fortified. Um, but Allenby comes up this route uh, into Beersheba. And, it's there, it's there. and even on the map, it's, it's got there the, the capturing of Beersheba and gives you the date and the details. Uh, but this is the campaign of Palestine. This is the operations map they had from the time. So they'll be in the slides later if you want to look at that in more detail. Again, a quote from Jonathan Carney says, Just as Beersheba was intrinsic to Israel's beginning, so it would again be intrinsic to the beginning of Israel's restoration. 
As it was the first place in the land to be claimed for Abraham and his children, the first to be taken away by others, and the first to be restored, so after 2,000 years of exile, Beersheba would also be the first place to be reclaimed and returned to Abraham's children. And it all took place in the year of Jubilee, when what is lost must be restored to the original owner. Beersheba was regained on the 31st of October, 1917. That should ring a bell because we've looked at that date already. It was the same day the British War Cabinet approved the Balfour Declaration. There's no coincidence in any of this. So after 2,000 years, the promise of the land and the beginning of its transference took place on the same day. As for the Sabbath that sealed that week, there was, as always, an appointed scripture. It was from Genesis 21:31. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. Speaks of the, an agreement and the signing of an oath and the claiming of this place, Beersheba. The very scripture on the very day. Amazing, again, these things, how the Lord engineered it. Jonathan Carr said this, So the word appointed to seal the week of the regaining of Beersheba was the scripture that spoke of the regaining of Beersheba. And the words were proclaimed throughout the world. For in the year of Jubilee, the rights of the original owner to his ancestors' land must be reaffirmed. So Beersheba constituted the first legal title given to the Jewish people concerning their right to the land. And it just happened to happen to be appointed for that week. Appointed long before anyone involved with those events was born. And he says the fingerprints of God indeed. Well, the victory of Beersheba would lead to the ultimate relinquishing of the ultimate ancestral possession for the Jews. That is, of course, Jerusalem. And so in the year of Jubilee... With only 22 days left in that year would come the liberation of the holy city of Jerusalem itself. The city would be given to the empire that had just issued the declaration decreeing the return of the land to its people. Two days later, General Allenby would enter its gates, ascend a platform and declare a new beginning for the city and for the land. But there were some other miraculous things that took place. It's no secret that Israel, particularly, and Jerusalem are the most contested pieces of property on earth. The most fought over city is Jerusalem. But in 1917, something happened over that land and that city that would mark and separate that war from all the wars that had ever been waged over that soil to that point. Soon after Allenby arrived in Egypt, he sent word to the British War Cabinet that he needed a revitalized air corps. New planes and better planes and more planes is what he asked for. Well, he got them. And so when he took up his command, the skies of the Holy Land were dominated by the enemy forces, German supporting the Ottoman Turks. And if the British were to be successful and take the land in the city of Jerusalem, they had to change that. They had to overtake their enemies in the air. In the summer of 1917, the tide really did begin to turn. And soon, Britain gained supremacy of the skies over Israel, over the Holy Land, over Jerusalem. And they proved to be critical to Allenby's campaign. They flew reconnaissance missions to give strategic reports on the enemy and what was going on and where the enemy was moving. And of course, the enemy were very familiar with the land, not the British, but the intelligence actually gave them, the British, the edge. But it wasn't just the intelligence. The planes would also provide cover for the British troops on the ground in the midst of battle. Significantly, 
Allenby's Air Force also stopped enemy aircraft from going on bombing missions, and they played a really important part in the liberation and protection of Jerusalem. Of course, the last thing the British War Cabinet wanted was to see Jerusalem end up being destroyed or in ruins. But on the December the 9th, which was a central day of Jerusalem's liberation, right at the end of this, this period, even in bad weather, it was number 14 squadron that managed to take to the air, they patrolled the skies and run missions against the enemy. Miraculously, again, Jerusalem emerged from the war largely unscathed, just as is foretold in prophecy. In Isaiah 31, verse 5, we have this prophetic scripture. And it just speaks as, as birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. And passing over, he will preserve it. Now in Isaiah, that's speaking of a time where Isaiah was speaking about the Assyrians. But of course, many prophecies have double fulfillments as the Lord looks down through the ages. And this one seems so incredibly fitting to this particular situation we're talking about. In all of the ages of its long history, Jerusalem has seen countless armies and uh, swords, chariots, horsemen, and archers, and siege works, warriors, all those kind of things. But never in a war which vessels appeared in the skies as birds flying to help bring about its preservation and deliverance. Until we get to this very war we're talking about in 1917, the First World War. Now remember the parishes, these appointed scriptures, were the appointed words that were read from the scrolls on the Sabbath day. There were also other appointed words, not for the Jews, but that others had, other scriptures that would be read each day. Now, typically in this country, we have the Book of Common Prayer. It goes back to the 16th century, it's produced by the Anglican Church, and it contains appointed scriptures not only for each week, but for every day, every morning, and every night. As part of the Anglican Church, many of the soldiers that had gone out there would have been in Alamir's army. They no doubt would have been familiar with the Book of Common Prayer. Many of them would have probably had a copy and would have been reading those scriptures. Certainly if you look at the work that the likes of Oswald Chambers did, I mean, they had a mess hall which the people were just, the soldiers were just playing and chilling out. They turned it into a Bible study. It was incredible, the work that Oswald Chambers did and others. But nevertheless, on December the 8th, 1917, it was the last full day of fighting in the battle for Jerusalem. There was a particular scripture in the Book of Common Prayer. And again, it had been appointed, appointed hundreds of years beforehand to be read on that day. And it was this, there's birds flying. So will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. And passing over, he will preserve it. As I said already, those who flew over the whole land at that time of his deliverance were the number 14 squadron of the RAF. A squadron had a motto. It was, I spread my wings and keep my promises. There's actually a book that you can still obtain called Winged Promises. And it speaks about the exploits of the number 14 squadron, the RAF squadron at that time. Just incredible. Again, all these things tying together. Again, December the 9th, 1917, the day of Jerusalem's liberation, there was another word appointed in the Book of Common Prayer. And it was from Isaiah 33. It said this, Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities, or our feasts. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. 
Well, the British soldiers in the land of Israel would have opened up the common prayer, book of common prayer that day to find that appointed scripture telling them to look on the city of Jerusalem. And it was on that day that it would come true. They would enter its gates and for the first time behold the city. The next day, December the 10th, was a day of rejoicing and comfort, not only for Jerusalem's liberation, but for the fact that Jerusalem's warfare had ended. And the word appointed for that day was another prophecy, an ancient prophecy some 700 BC from the book of Isaiah. Words that foretold a day of God's comforting his people and his city when Jerusalem's warfare had come to an end. It was this from Isaiah 41 and 2. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hands double for all of her sins. We said before that idea of double and an exact likeness. Incredible. That was the scripture on the day that again, that comfort came to Jerusalem. In the book of Daniel, there's another prophecy that a number of scholars have pondered over. From the context, it seems to be referring to the time following the second coming after Jesus has come back to deliver Israel. But as with many prophecies, they can speak of different events separated by spans of time. It deals with the time that the Temple Mount would be given into the hands of strangers and God's purposes would be obfuscated for a period of time. It had to do with the time that Jerusalem and the Holy Land would be occupied by enemy forces. Well, centuries after Daniel was given that prophecy, foreigners invaded the land and took possession of Jerusalem. They prevented the Jewish people from worshipping on the Temple Mount. Of course, we're talking about the Ottoman Turks, the Islamic Caiaphats, those that have been in the land for this time. But interestingly, Daniel's given a prophetic number. We read this in Daniel 12. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that makes desolate set up, there shall be 1,290 days. And then we have this verse 12. Blessed is he that waits and comes to the 1,335th day. And again, there's, there's contention and questions about what this means. But this number 1,335 is a number signifying the end of the occupation of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, certainly from the context. Again, we're told the blessed is the one who waits for that day when the hostile powers must leave the holy city and God's people can return. It's in a sense a number of restoration. Well, as the end of the Ottoman occupation of Jerusalem began near, a sign began appearing. It was in fact a number that signified the end of the occupation. It was the number 1335, 1335. And the number began appearing in the Middle East, and specifically in the land of Egypt. It was the place where Allenby, of course, started the campaign that would drive the Ottoman Empire out of the land. The number, as it happened, appeared on an Egyptian coin. Just as the year 1917 was approaching, and then throughout that year, that coin was being distributed in the region. And again, it appears in the year of Jubilee. Why did that number appear on an Egyptian coin? Well, it turned out to be that on the Islamic calendar, the year just happened to be 1335. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. It was 1,335 years from the rise of Islam. Was it the fulfillment of the prophecy? Well, Jonathan Khan says this, It's not that it was the fulfillment of the prophecy, but rather the playing out of a biblical template. The prophecy speaks of days. 
But the significance here is the pattern or template. 1,335 is the number given to the Jewish people to speak of the end of foreigners occupying the land, inhabiting the holy places, the end of the obstruction of God's purposes. So the Islamic calendar just happened to mark the year 1917 with the same number given in the Hebrew Bible signifying the end of an occupation and in the process pinpointing the year of Jubilee. Well, the British government was not going to proceed with a bountiful declaration until getting approval from the American president, as I said earlier, from Woodrow Wilson. And they were notified of that approval on October the 16th, 1917. Why am I reminding you of that fact again? Well, because that was the very day that sealed the year 1335. Again, the occupation would thus end and the restoration would begin. And again, blessed would be those who waited for the day. Just one more thing to share and then we're done for today. When the Jewish people returned from their exile, from their first exile, their captivity in Babylon, the return didn't come about all at once, but in waves. And the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the the nation would likewise happen over a longer period of time. They encountered much resistance. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us about that. And there were many obstacles in their way. And so at some points... The whole work came to a complete standstill. But it was then that God sent to Israel a prophet to encourage them. That prophet was Haggai. His main name means celebration. And Haggai spoke to those who had returned from Babylon in those ancient times to encourage them. But his words would now speak to those who had returned in modern times as well. The modern restoration of Israel parallels that ancient restoration in a number of ways. Haggai encouraged those who'd returned to the land by telling them of the nation's future blessings. And in one of those prophecies, he even told them when the blessing would come. He gave them a date. He said this, Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. He told them to think about this specific day. What was special about that day? Why was it important to Israel? Well, it was the day their desolations had ended. Again, you go back, you look at the prophecies that Jeremiah gave of this period of time, there'll be 70 years decreed for the desolation of Jerusalem. It was the very day that ended. And that's why Haggai says, remember this, consider this, it's a great day, a day of celebration, as his name Haggai means. Jonathan Carr says this, the 24th day of the ninth month, everything centered on that day. From that day forward, everything is to change. On the 24th day of the ninth month, the blessing will come and God's purposes will be fulfilled. Well, incredibly, in the year of Jubilee, in 1917, in the 24th day of the ninth month of that particular year, in the Jewish calendar, it happened to fall on December the 9th, 1917, the very day Jerusalem was liberated. It was the day that the Jewish people had been waiting for for some 2,000 years. Now Haggai also went on to prophesy, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength for kingdoms, and the heathen, I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. And so the Ottoman Empire was overthrown. Interesting the reference to swords, isn't it, when you think of Islam. And again, that happened on the anniversary of the end of the desolations of Jerusalem in 618 BC. 
the very thing happened again in 1917. So the day the desolations ended, the day appointed for the ending of the curse, the day that the occupation of 2,000 years of hostile powers had come to an end. But there is more. Because the next day, the 25th day of the ninth month, was the Feast of Hanukkah. And so December the 9th, 17, was the beginning of Hanukkah. Of course, the Jewish day begins in the evening. So on the evening of that day, the Jewish, oh, sorry, the Jerusalem was liberated all over the world. Jewish people let the lights of Hanukkah to celebrate the rededication of the temple, temple and the ending of foreign occupation of Jerusalem. Jonathan Kahn says this. So the night that sealed Jerusalem's liberation and the ending of its occupation happened to be the start of the ancient holiday that celebrates Jerusalem's liberation and the ending of its occupation. Also, there's a special word appointed to be read on the Sabbath of Hanukkah. And so on the Sabbath of the week that sealed the liberation of Jerusalem, this was the word proclaimed in synagogues all over the earth. The Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Zechariah 2.12 And so in the closing days of 1917, the Lord again took possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and had again chosen Jerusalem. Staggering. We're going to conclude it next week and there's some wonderful things to come. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity just to review some history and just to see, Lord, how in complete control you are of these things. Oh, Father, may us the hearts be stirred as we just bring to mind your faithfulness, the promises that you made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The Lord, you, if you make a promise, Lord, you delight in keeping that promise. And Lord, how that applies to us and the promises you've given us that you've given us an expected end, just as you've given Israel. That, Lord, you've given us an eternity, safe and secure with you. Oh, Father, we do pray for Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for all that is yet to come upon that nation as revealed in your word. But, Lord, help us to use these things, Lord, to just encourage our own hearts, to be aware, Lord, of your complete control. And, Lord, if you are involved in the details to this degree. How much more in our own lives are you involved in every step we take? So may we take it, Lord, walking with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.